Okay. <coughs> okay. So hello, everybody. Um, welcome to democracy, or sorry, I should say ancient modern. I almost said democracy ancient modern. Just call it ancient modern this podcast. And today we have a very special guest who is uh, Josiah Ober, professor of classics and political science at Stanford. Um, he has been a mentor to many classicists, including myself. And he's the author of, well, <laughs> more than a few books, but the ones we want to talk about today, I think, are this great trilogy of books about democratic Athens. Uh, and we'll get to those in just a moment. I have a big pile, a pile of three books here. But Josh, I wanted to start out because I know that you, um, originally you weren't a scholar of democracy. You were a scholar of Athenian military history. And I know you tramped around the Attic countryside and camped out and you published a few old fortification towers and you were very interested in the, the walls and the towers in Attica. So can you talk a little bit about what you were doing then and how, how did you make the transition from working on that to working on Athenian democracy? Yeah, well, thanks very much, James, and very happy to be um, having this uh, conversation. Uh, so yeah, my uh, PhD dissertation uh, was on the defense of Athens, the defensive system of Athens after the Peloponnesian War. Uh, this was really inspired by uh, the Vietnam era questions that were very much in our minds uh, at, at that point. Um, we're talking about now the uh, uh, mid to late 1970s. Uh, and I was very interested in the question of what happens to a democratic society when it loses a big war. Um, and Athens obviously lost a big war. The United States had lost a much less consequential to the United States war. Um, uh, and it seemed something worth investigating. Uh, so uh, it fairly quickly um, became clear that in order to really do the work on this, I had to not only investigate the economic background, you know, how did the Athenian economy change um, after the Peloponnesian War such that protecting local resources was a more important uh, issue uh, and uh, general attitudes towards was it, um, uh, you know, a terrible thing that uh, we gave up our sacred countryside during that war and lost the war anyway. Um, there also was a, a matter of the um, response in terms of the uh, material infrastructure. Um, so what did they actually do in terms of um, building things that were different than they would have built otherwise, especially in terms of um, how they were protecting the countryside. Uh, so it had this big archaeological component, which became uh, quite uh, central to what I was doing. Uh, meaning that um, uh, my wife Adrian and I got to tramp around the Greek countryside for some time, uh, uh, looking for fortified sites, recording them, um, uh, and uh, trying to make sense of the uh, basically military infrastructure of the uh, Athenian countryside, um, especially the way it changed between the fifth and the fourth centuries. So I thought that was what I'd probably do for the rest of my career. Um, uh, uh, and published some work um, on it. Um, uh, but then uh, there was a change in the Greek government, um, uh, which made doing the kind of field work I was engaged in much more difficult. That became virtually impossible to get permits for doing the kind of thing I was doing. Um, uh, and so I had to go to plan B. Uh, plan B was a note card that I had uh, scratched a, uh, a note on um, back when I was working on my dissertation. Um, uh, and the note card said something like, think about elitism and anti-elitism um, in uh, uh, Athenian rhetoric, uh, because I noticed it were these sort of odd contradictions, um, or what seemed like odd contradictions in some uh, speeches by Athenian orators. Um, so since I uh, needed to try to get tenure at that point, and I figured I wasn't going to get it if I was basing my career on archaeological field work that I couldn't do, plan B looked pretty good because it was all library work. And so that's why I turned to the book that eventually became uh, Mass and Elite in Democratic Athens. Right, great. So that's a perfect segue. So let's turn to this book, Mass and Elite in Democratic Athens, the first book on my pile. So this is really essentially it's a study of or oratory, right? Or it's a study of the, the 
the remains of uh, speeches that we have from law courts and other institutions within Athens. So Demosthenes, Lysias, people like that. But um, it's not really a kind of conventional rhetorical study of, of those texts. Um, what was it in particular that you were trying to do with, with your study of those texts in this book? Yeah, so I um, got interested in uh, Greek oratory um, when I was still a graduate student. That's why I had that note card uh, back in the day. What it seemed to me is that the work that had been done at that point um, on Greek rhetoric uh, was sort of missing the point. Uh, there was lots of interesting um, uh, work on the uh, rhetorical tropes and the um, thinking about speeches uh, in their literary sense. And there was a lot of kind of historical um, uh, nugget mining, uh, trying to um, take bits out of the speeches that were relevant to reconstructing the actual events of the period, which was all very useful and um, helpful and uh, a good foundation for what I was doing. But uh, it seemed that the what were these speeches doing uh, was not really, and especially what were they doing if you think of them as a corpus rather than just speech by speech, seemed to be, uh, seemed to be missed. Um, so basically I thought, well, what's, the, what's, the, what's going on in a speech? Well, it's an individual talking to a large audience in a democracy. Uh, the individual almost invariably being a member of the Athenian elite, one way or another, elite of wealth, elite of education. It's talking to a bunch of people, citizens, um, either in an assembly or in a uh, law court who were, for the most part, not elite, um, and trying to communicate to them something that was rather important to the speaker, either trying to persuade them to vote on a particular item, um, or in the court case of the more numerous court speeches, persuade them to vote a certain way on a, on a legal question, um, highly salient legal question for the defendant or prosecutor in a, in a courtroom. Uh, and so in order to make their argument, uh, make this go through, uh, I thought in, it, was, it seemed at least intuitive um, that the speaker is going to have to take into account some of the attitudes of the audience. Um, this seemed to be what Aristotle was saying in his Art of Rhetoric, or at least some passages in the Art of Rhetoric. And so I conceived then of the body of speeches that we had um, as at least fragments of a two-way conversation between Athenian elites and their mass audiences about things that were important to both sides. Um, on the one hand, about um, the role for elites, in some cases a leadership role for elites. On the other hand, um, uh, the mass audience that was very eager to avoid um, capture of the democratic system by elites and was um, uh, both recognized the uh, necessity of um, uh, elite leadership in certain areas, but was very nervous about the likelihood that um, unconstrained um, elites would capture the system for their own um, uh, advantage. Uh, and so the body of these speeches, I thought, um, and I argued, um, could be used uh, to look at the way in which the two-way communication, the response of the um, audience to the speakers and the response of the speakers to the audience um, uh, could be a way to try to get at um, uh, how the discourse of democracy actually worked and ultimately argued that the discourse of democracy had a lot to do with why democracy succeeded in Athens because they, um, a vocabulary uh, was developed in which um, elites and masses could talk to each other um, uh, and that uh, vocabulary, that uh, the, even the grammar of that conversation was ultimately, I suggested, controlled by the audience rather than by the speaker, um, uh, because the speaker was in the end completely dependent on the audience to achieve the ends they were trying to achieve, that is, you know, the vote. Uh, uh, and so that seemed to me to be then um, a way to explain the puzzle, or at least a first take on explaining the puzzle, 
of, um, as my dissertation advisor once posed it to me, um, why is it uh, that a democratic city-state um, uh, survived uh, more than 20 minutes? Right. Well, I mean, that was the challenge, wasn't it? Well, not, not only did, did it survive for, uh, for more than 20 minutes, but it seems like you're arguing that contrary to what a lot of people used to say, it was genuinely democracy, right? Because that's the point of what you're saying about discourse, that it's really the demos, the people of Athens, who are in the driving seat. There is an elite in Athens. There is a social uh, and economic elite, but it doesn't seem to control the discourse. And we'll get on to the fact that they don't seem to control the institutions either. But um, I just wanted to add one thing in. I mean, I know that you were also inspired, if that's the right word, by uh, Robert Michels, this uh, German-Italian sociologist who had this theory, you know, the iron law of oligarchy. And he studied uh, socialist movements and I think the church as well. And he, his theory was that however egalitarian an organization is, it always sort of slides towards oligarchy because there are always people who emerge to be the leaders. And, and it's very difficult to, to maintain a democracy true democracy for any length of time. So that was something you were taking aim at in, in this book as well, right? Yeah, uh, I, um, when I started digging into this, I realized how influential uh, Michael's uh, uh, iron law of oligarchy really was, not only in sociological studies or political sociology, um, but uh, also in the field of classics. Um, so uh, if we think about um, the work of uh, uh, the great Roman historian Ronald Syme, in some ways, the, you know, one of the most influential historians of the 20th century. In, in I graduated at Victoria University, may, may I add. There you have it. <laughs> A plug. Uh, uh, so Syme, uh, in the uh, preface to that work, um, uh, doesn't directly cite uh, Michels, but he basically restates the iron law, says that every behind every form of government, um, whether it's ostensibly a democracy or ostensibly a monarchy, there is always an oligarchy, um, and that the job of the uh, historian is to excavate that, that archaeology, which is there, it will be found. Uh, so it's one of the strongest statements of the uh, historical methodology I know of, which is amusing because Syme is often thought or um, cited by uh, the sort of older school uh, historians of my early years who were claimed to be completely um, uh, hostile to all forms of methodology or theory. Well, here Syme is using one of the, one of the fundamental theories about social organization, this uh, iron law, uh, and just claiming that, you know, it's uh, uh, the job of the historian is to simply rediscover the, the iron law wherever, um, in whatever society you happen to be studying. Uh, at any rate, um, uh, I thought that uh, Athens was at least potentially um, a way to challenge that, um, and that the, uh, it is not the case that every society is actually an oligarchy. Um, uh, that really does change the whole way we think about the potential for um, uh, a human social organization. Um, if you accept the iron law really is an iron law, um, uh, then it's going to be uh, uh, a very different thing from if you think that um, uh, oligarchy is one tendency um, that needs to be guarded against in a democracy, but it is not uh, uh, an inevitability. Right. Yeah. Syme, I think, said of the uh, Roman constitution that it was a screen and a sham, which uh, actually, when it comes to the Roman constitution, <laughs> I don't know if I completely disagree with that. Well, after a certain point, it's obviously a screen, screen and a sham once you get into the empire. But um, Okay, so let's move move on now because there were there were also people around in Athens as part mostly part of this uh, cultural and uh, economic elite who also thought that the Athenian constitution was kind of a sham. Uh, maybe not in the sense that it wasn't genuinely democracy. I think the, their problem, one of their problems with it was was that they thought it was a genuine democracy. But I'm talking about, of course, the sort of what you call the company of critics of Athenian democracy. And this is the subject of uh, of this book, um, political dissent in democratic Athens. So um, I, I remember reading the, the intro or the, the, um, the preface of this book, and you, you talk about how at various points in this, in this study of many different critics of the Athenian democracy, certain figures threatened to take over. It almost just became a book about Plato. I think it almost just became a book about Thucydides. So why, why, why do this? Because it, it kind of, I think at the time it probably ran up against some um, fairly sort of well-established norms and classics that you're really just meant to go deep into one author. 
So why sort of go crazy and do how many of them are there in this book? Yes. Six or seven, right? Why do six or seven at the same time? Yeah. Uh, so um, it really was when I finished the uh, Mass and Elite book, uh, uh, maybe before it was even published, I'd realized that I'd really only started the project. Um, I, you know, every time you start on a book, you think, okay, this is it. You know, I've now, I've now solved the problem. But by the time you get to the end of the book, you realize, you know, actually you've only uh, uh, begun to uh, address the problem. So the basic question then is if the story is right, that there was a sort of hegemonic um, tendency in public discourse, um, uh, and the hegemony was really held by the masses rather than by the elites, so the turning Antonio Gramsci's argument of cultural hegemony on its head, then that left open the question of, well, how is criticism possible? Um, uh, and then if you think about the um, uh, work uh, that we have from antiquity, a lot of it is overtly critical of democracy. So the idea that hegemony simply made um, criticism of this democratic system impossible is confounded on the face of it by the literary record. Yeah. So the question then is, what is the relationship between critical discourse um, and democracy? Uh, so uh, the first thought there was that um, the democracy offers a challenge to critics, um, uh, a, a challenge to, I should say, um, elite intellectuals that really only exists um, when a democracy is real. Uh, if you think about um, a society in which the so-called iron law is actually operative, um, then elites are running the thing. Um, uh, and there's no need for them to think very deeply about politics uh, in an intellectual sense. They just they think about how to you know, compete with other elites about who's actually running it. But you don't really need to think very hard about um, what it is that we're doing in politics, um, because after all, we're just doing what comes naturally to the ruling class. Um, uh, but if the natural ruling class in the minds of the aristocrats is actually not running the show, um, uh, and if the ordinary people are running the show, and they are actually doing it pretty well in terms of the, um, at least the, the, the polis is holding together, um, win some wars, you lose some wars, but um, uh, overall, uh, the uh, system seems to be uh, performing, uh, and performing perhaps even better than um, uh, the, the oligarchic alternatives, um, uh, as uh, uh, Plato had to admit uh, after um, his relatives took over the government of Athens briefly um, at the end of the Peloponnesian War and made a total mess of things. Um, uh, and so you sort of have to then scratch your head and say, well, at least the Democrats didn't make that bad of a mess of things. Um, uh, uh, so if you can't just say, well, democracy is simply impossible, um, you know, per uh, Robert Michels. Um, uh, and if you can't say, well, um, uh, it's certainly the case that our people would run things better um, if we were running things, um, uh, then what are you going to say? Um, and ultimately, I think that pushes then um, elites uh, into a position, um, intellectual elites, people like Plato or, or Thucydides, um, into a position of having to really think much more deeply about what is the nature of um, uh, politics um, and uh, what alternatives are there uh, to um, uh, the rule of the people. Uh, so that's sort of the logic of, the, of, of, this, uh, of this book. Um, but I realized much like the uh, Mass and Elite book, which was meant to not study a particular speaker, but a mass of, of, of speeches, uh, that I really had to make the argument not just on the basis of an intellectual, because, you know, if you just do just Plato or just Thucydides, you have special um, uh, features, um, special considerations um, that can't be explained by a general relationship between criticism and democracy. You really have to cover the waterfront to an extent and say that there are themes that are running through uh, a range of speakers, or a range of uh, writers rather, uh, who are um, different in many ways. So 
Thucydides ostensibly writing history, Plato, Aristotle ostensibly writing moral philosophy, um, people like uh, Aristophanes writing comedies, um, people like Isocrates writing uh, these kind of uh, speeches um, intended for circulation rather than actual performance. Um, uh, you have a range of these uh, uh, writers who seem to be engaged in a debate among themselves, um, but with a set of concerns that are common to that company or that community of, uh, of critical writers. Uh, and the only way you're going to uh, really make that argument is to you know, go deep enough into each of the uh, uh, each of these authors, um, and then show the um, uh, commonal commonalities um, among them, and then show the ways in which each writer seems to be picking up themes and seeking to do better than um, other writers within this broadly speaking critical community. So they have a, a, a common set of concerns um, uh, about which uh, they are competing for the best answer. Right. And there are differences, as you say. I mean, the, the figure we know is the old oligarch sort of says, I don't really like democracy, but they do it well. And, and that's kind of all he, all he gets to. But of course, there's some more impressive thinkers in this bunch, uh, Thucydides and Plato. And I, th I guess one of the themes that, that they are looking at a lot is this idea of, of knowledge, or we might even say rationality. And that's, I guess that's really ultimately Plato's critique of democracy, that he thinks that politics should be some kind of form of expertise. And you can train people up to have that form of expertise, which really ultimately, I guess, depends on, on being an ethical expert more than a political expert. But once you get the ethics right, or even the metaphysics right, and you can see the form of the good, you can understand what the good, what the good is, capital G, then you can do politics well. So um, yeah, do you want to talk about that for a while? Because so, it seems like the idea that democracies can't really do knowledge or expertise right is at the core of some of these thinkers' uh, critiques. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly so. Uh, I mean, certainly the notion that they are not rational in the right way, um, uh, uh, maybe not rational at all, um, and certainly um, uh, incapable of the kind of expertise, um, the kind of political expertise, the kind of technical political expertise um, that would be necessary to create a morally valuable community um, is really at the core of the, uh, of the uh, uh, argument that I think certainly that Plato makes, Aristotle picks up on this in a, in a different kind of way. Um, uh, earlier writers, uh, Thucydides, I think, isn't as concerned with the achievement of a morally um, uh, uh, good or um, even acceptable community, but he is once again very concerned with the lack of expertise, um, thinks that Pericles has a certain kind of political expertise. He both um, has a capacity to um, uh, figure out uh, the likely course of events based on an assessment of probability, um, and also has the um, rhetorical expertise to be able to control the audience rather than be controlled by it. That's a theme that runs through a lot of this, uh, this writing. Um, uh, and so, yeah, their argument is ultimately that um, that really is the core problem with democracy is that um, it really lacks the capacity to identify the right kind of experts um, and to use that expertise in order to gain the relevant ends, whether those ends are you know, material ends, security, welfare, or whether those ends are moral ends that, you know, a, um, uh, an ethical uh, a community. Yeah, and Thucydides seems to think that, you know, the institutions are, are just all wrong because you've got all these people in the assembly, a lot of them aren't very well educated, and you say, you know, shall we invade Sicily? Something crazy like that, you know, and then the ball starts rolling, and once it starts rolling, you know, the snowball becomes an avalanche. And they can't, even if, you know, wiser, older heads like Nikias stand up and say, you know, we can't do this, or if, we, if we're going to do this, we've got to go really big. Uh, the Athenian assembly then sort of says, great, let's do it. Let's go really big, because they're also sort of riled up. So, so I guess for Plato, it's quite an intellectualist view, although he definitely has his own ideas about what institutions should be like. Um, weird ideas about what institutions, fascinating ideas about what institutions should be like. Um, Thucydides also, I think, has this more implicit 
critique of institutions. So, okay, so you've got these critiques of institutions and of the idea that democracies can aggregate knowledge. And now we have your, your next book, which I guess takes this head on. So Democracy and Knowledge, Innovation and Learning in Classical Athens. So I, this is really uh, an attempt to show that contrary to what Plato and Thucydides were implying or even saying outright, um, Athens is kind of a, I mean, maybe it's too much to say it's a model, but it, it kind of exemplifies and illustrates the ways in which democratic institutions can actually aggregate knowledge and create some kind of rationality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, I realized, you know, once again, at the end of the second um, book in this trilogy, the book on uh, critics of democracy, that I really didn't have the final answer about how is it that the democracy answered those particular concerns. I talked about the control of discourse, that is you can keep um, uh, elites from capturing the system um, uh, and uh, you can have the relationship between a democratic society and its critics that generates a lot of high-end and very deep and uh, uh, very thoughtful um, uh, uh, criticism. Um, uh, but ultimately, I didn't know how to answer that criticism. I didn't really have the story about how is it that Athens does um, achieve its ends, its material ends of at least you know, security, um, uh, welfare, in, in a highly competitive um, uh, a Greek world. Um, so I really struggled uh, with this one. I, I, uh, the this, this third uh, third book um, uh, gave me fits. Um, I had it sort of half written um, at one point, um, uh, based on some preliminary uh, ideas that were pretty much being generated off of the thinking that went into the first two books. Um, but I really didn't. I wasn't satisfied with it, uh, and. Uh, uh, about at that point when I have it half written and think I've got to go somewhere with this. I was lucky enough to have a uh, fellowship um, uh, at the Center for Advanced Studies in Behavioral Sciences here at Stanford. This is before I joined the faculty at Stanford. I was still at Princeton at the time. Um, got to this, uh, uh, this center, um, ran my preliminary ideas by some of the social scientists um, at the, both at the Research Center and at, at Stanford Political Science Department, and people basically said, "Well, that doesn't make much sense." <laughs> I felt very discouraged by, you know. I thought, "Well, I, I'm, I'm a serious Greek historian. You're supposed to say, you know, well, we, we're going to tweak the idea a little bit." But, uh, uh, but no, I just sort of said that really is you're off on the wrong, well, off on the wrong foot. Um, uh, and uh, I realized uh, you know, pretty quickly I really was, and I really was because I hadn't really thought um, uh, uh, seriously enough about um, the ways in which various uh, democratic institutions, in fact, could be um, uh, uh, understood using the right sort of analytic tools um, as having the potential to, even if not designed initially to, but having the potential to um, uh, aggregate um, and um, align and, and carry out um, uh, uh, in a uh, formal uh, codified sort of way, uh, the background knowledge of a large, diverse um, uh, a community like that of um, the Athenian citizenry. Uh, so it really was took me into uh, an institutionalist turn, um, which my earlier two books really, really hadn't hadn't, hadn't uh, uh, engaged with very much. Okay, so maybe let's try and give people who haven't yet read the book an idea of what you mean by by some of these uh, mechanisms. So you talked about aggregation. So what's going on there? So there are people around Athens, and I guess they all they all have their different. Uh, little local knowledges of what's going on. Maybe I live in a seaside town and I know about the fishing or, or I, I can build, I, I, I've helped out building a ship and there's someone who lives in the center of Athens and they know about uh, building work. Or, so, so what happens in the, how does the Athenian system help to kind of bring those little tidbits of knowledge together? Yeah, so the basic uh, idea, and I got this um, uh, through doing some uh, uh, work on, um, uh, theories of um, organizations, including business organizations, um, but uh, organizations of various sorts. 
Uh, and it, it turns out that at least according to lots of organizational theory, the big problem that any large complex organization has is how to um, uh, make use of that which is known by the many individuals who make up the organization in an effective manner. So the, the assumption is, is that we collectively know much more than any one of us actually knows um, or any few of us actually knows um, because we each have some special knowledge of particular um, uh, processes or particular information or um, uh, particular skill sets, particular experiences that are ultimately potentially uh, uh, relevant for solving various problems that we collectively as the organization need to be able to address. Um, the trick is how do you actually get that stuff to work together? The problem is, it's like a big mass of data, right? I mean, you can, which is a problem that people work on currently, right? You've got lots and lots and lots of data. How do you organize it in a way so that it actually answers a question you want to, you want to ask. Um, uh, and that's not a, that's not a simple matter. Um, uh, it's uh, really, um, uh, you both have to um, deal with the uh, problem of how do you get out, out of people's heads, what they have in their heads? Um, why don't people just protect their proprietary knowledge? No, they'd say, well, actually, no, my knowledge is, is, is valuable. It's intellectual property. I'm not gonna make it public uh, uh, just because. Um, and then how do you decide, well, what bits of knowledge are actually relevant for the particular problem we have to deal with now? Um, uh, and that's not, all the data that's out there gets just some bits. And how do you do all of this in a timely way so that you actually can address a problem before the problem beats you, right? So, uh, and so I think that's really a matter of um, uh, institutions that are designed in a certain way. Uh, so part of the book was really to look at how um, certain particular features of the Athenian democracy, especially the um, Council of 500, the a Council of Citizens that was chosen by um, random uh, selection through a lottery to and aimed at for uh, uh, the reasons of the original developer of this institution to try to mix together um, all of the people from the diverse parts of, um, of Athens probably at that point, simply trying to create national cohesion, um, trying to um, break down the kind of local regionalism that made it difficult for Athens to do anything um, as, a, as a cohesive state. Um, but as, a, uh, as the economists would say, a positive externality um, of this mixing together of a randomly chosen um, group of citizens uh, in the council on a given year, you had a selection of um, uh, citizens who know quite a lot about what Athens knows. Um, then the organization of the council, um, uh, which is largely structured uh, or structures a lot of the work through um, uh, in a sense, subcommittees of the whole um, groups of 50 uh, of these uh, uh, councillors, um, each group of 50 also internally diverse um, by design. Um, uh, and they're now down to a small enough group that has to work together for a year um, uh, and has quite high incentives to, in fact, solve problems. Um, uh, a small enough group that, of, uh, of men who come to know each other quite well, um, uh, who have uh, understanding that if they do their job well, they will be in various ways, at least in reputational ways, rewarded um, by, their, that, by their fellow citizens. Uh, and that uh, if they fail, um, there will be really serious consequences, not only for the state as a whole, but for themselves. Um, and so you basically overcome these problems of um, uh, people being unwilling to say what's in their head because they actually begin to have some incentives uh, to say what's in their head. 
um, uh, they have incentives to um, talk with people from different walks of life um, in an attempt to uh, solve problems. Uh, and because you get to know each other, you know who knows what, you know who's trustworthy on what, um, uh, you begin to have a capacity to sort out the information relevant to the problem that we're trying to deal with, whether it's, you know, do we or don't we raise the um, payments to the orphans this year, or do we or don't we um, uh, go to war with Sparta, or how many ships should we build and send to uh, uh, a given um, uh, a theater of war? Uh, and uh, uh, this then becomes a process then of potentially aggregating a lot of the information that is known across the community um, in, uh, a, uh, in a particular institutional locus, which is specifically designed and meant to um, give advice to the larger citizen assembly. Um, the larger citizen assembly then bringing in even larger um, potentially catchment of knowledge. But now they can start in an assembly meeting with a recommendation from the council that has already tried to aggregate a lot of what we collectively know, um, organize it to an answer to a particular problem. And this means that assembly discussions can simply add something to that. There may be something that the council doesn't know, but at least you have a place to start. Um, uh, and so the system then um, can effectively aggregate more of what is known. Um, and then the uh, process of decision-making in the assembly is aimed specifically at the difficult problem of deciding, well, um, what should we really do? What's the what will be the actual proposal um, uh, and trying to push towards something that at least can approach a quasi consensus on, yes, this is what we can do. This is the best we can do. This is we brought together as much as we can know in the time we have to know it. Um, this is the best answer we can have. And um, we go ahead and that becomes policy. So um, the, instead of just being a way to aggregate diverse preferences, which is often the way we think about democracy, you know, I want guns, you want butter. Um, uh, it becomes a way to aggregate knowledge for problem solving. And that was sort of the breakthrough idea. That's why does Athens work? Because it actually, uh, it, 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 uh, uh, it actually works effectively for institutionally specifiable reasons based on the incentives that individuals have. Um, uh, to share what they know and to do it in an effective way. Um, and this then um, solves the puzzle of why Athens turns out to be a relatively effective um, organization. Right, right. But it still seems to me it's sort of continuous with this more utilitarian view of preference aggregation, which is the idea, you know, that you just get what people want. As you say, I like guns, you like butter, I like vanilla ice cream, and then you kind of build it up. And I know you, you quote Hayek at a few points in your book. I mean, mm -hmm. one of Hayek's big things, of course, was the price mechanism, the idea that um, there's it's information out there about what people want. And the best way of aggregating that and sort of diffusing it around society is, is the mechanism of price. Now, you have something similar going on because you're aggregating knowledge. You're doing it in a more status way, which is fine. I mean, maybe Hayek wouldn't have, wouldn't have been fine with it, but that, that seems to me to be what the Athenians were doing. They're aggregating knowledge in this way. So what we have here, I guess, is uh, it's a way of getting knowledge about the world out there. In the world here, it's sort of people's minds. So, you know, I want something. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm living in Sunion, and I go to the assembly, and I say, I would like this to happen. And everyone else, or, or, or you know, the male citizens in Athens can do the same thing. Um, and now it seems to me that we come to this problem. We're also in a democracy, and we have, uh, there's a strong element of majority rule. And as Thucydides uh, like to point out, there are also all of these mechanisms, these cascades that, that occur. Um, so you can actually be in the assembly, and it may be, for example, that there's somebody in the assembly like Nikias who actually knows a thing or two about Syracuse and Sicily and how far away they are. Mm -hmm. And so you have all these people signaling, oh, my, my preference, my information is that this is a fantastic idea to, mm -hmm. to launch this, um, this uh, armada to Sicily. And then you get to the point where somebody else says, well, I have a bit of knowledge too. And it just gets overwhelmed. And at that point, it seems also, uh, I don't think Thucydides says this directly, but we can, we can assume, I think, that there are probably people in the assembly meeting sitting there kind of scratching their heads saying, yeah, I'm not sure this is a good idea either. But there's a lot of hubbub in the assembly. There's this, the rubos, everybody's 
putting their hands up and, and I'm not gonna, I can see them putting their hands up. I know there's like 5,000 people putting their hands up to say, let's go to Sicily. I'm not gonna be the guy who puts his hand up and say, let's not go, go to Sicily. So, um, so then the, I guess this is a very complicated segue to, to another topic, which is sort of democracy and liberalism. Is there actually a tension here? Because you have these strong sort of majoritarian, and this is something of course that lots of people have worried about, you know, the American founders, et cetera. So you have these strong sort of majoritarian impulses, which are kind of necessary in democracy. But then you also want to, you, you also have to have, people have to have the ability to, to actually signal their true preferences if the democratic system is, is to work, right? So I know you worked on, in your, your, your book, Demopolis, you worked on the relationship between these two things, liberalism mm -hmm. and democracy. So I, I'll just throw all that at you and see how you respond. <laughs> yeah, um, so I think, uh, so this, uh, uh, the, uh, Demopolis, which the uh, uh, subtitle was um, Democracy Before Liberalism, um, uh, was uh, really meant uh, as a contribution, not in the first instance to um, Greek history, um, but uh, to democratic theory, but it did in fact um, uh, build on uh, the work I've been doing for a long time on uh, uh, Athens and uh, on um, Greek uh, democracies generally. Uh, so the, the the basic idea in that book is that uh, it's important to um, uh, analytically um, uh, separate uh, democracy as collective self-governance um, from liberalism um, as a commitment to um, uh, rights uh, of various sorts. I mean, in a simple sense, um, or to justice um, in, a, in, in some sense. So that uh, the question that uh, democracy as such, self-government has to ask, ask uh, or has to answer um, is uh, how is it that a collectivity um, can form coherent preferences, gain knowledge about the world um, relevant to the um, pursuit of these coherently formed preferences and then act accordingly. Um, and that's a, that's a collective action problem, right? And then collective action problems are really complicated. Um, they're complicated because of um, preference uh, diversity. It's not the case that the collective comes to the, uh, into the world all having just the same set of preferences um, uh, on a whole range of things. Um, uh, on the other hand, if you have complete preference diversity all the way down, um, it's not possible that this collectivity is going to actually be able to form the kind of you know, rational decisions, that is having preferences and um, putting knowledge on, about the world um, to work in satisfying those preferences and acting accordingly. Um, uh, so uh, the basic idea was is that um, for a democracy to work, there has to be an agreement on some very basic um, uh, preferences. Um, uh, and the very basic preferences that I've suggested that every um, uh, working um, political organization has to answer, um, any kind of um, constitutional order has to answer, is how do you... Um, uh, give people the thing that I think pretty much everybody wants, um, basic security, so that people aren't living in fear all the time, either of fear of one another or um, fear of... Oops. Pause. <laughs> Do you know anyone else who would like a ticket? All of us not. I don't. Okay, all right, I'm going. Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Standard Zoom. Something wrong with that. At any rate, um, uh, so the, the idea that there are, that, that every kind of uh, uh, political organization has to answer um, how do you create conditions of basic security and how do you create conditions of um, basic material welfare? So this is basically the question that uh, Thomas Hobbes uh, asks um, in the middle of the 17th century in the great work Leviathan. Um, and his argument is that in a state of nature, in a state of political disorganization, life is miserable because you don't have any capacity to 
gain either baseline security or baseline um, uh, welfare, and therefore you need some kind of a social organization, and he has an answer to that. It's going to be some um, uh, central, very strong central government. Um, uh, but the, uh, uh, the Democrat then has to add to that baseline security plus welfare a third shared preference, and that is not to have a boss, not to have an individual or a small junta um, uh, running the show. The Democrat says self-government by is necessary um, because I don't want to be run um, uh, by a boss. And the I take these as basically primitive preferences. Um, you don't have to really explain where they come from. Just if you have uh, people who want to create a democracy, they've at least decided on those three things. Um, uh, and, the, uh, uh, and then you know, the question of how do you achieve self-government, which is the only alternative to having a boss, if we're not going to have somebody run us, we have to run ourselves. We have to be our own boss. We are the collective boss over ourselves. Um, we set the rules and we uh, enforce the rules and we interpret the rules um, uh, ourselves rather than having this happen from the outside, as, as Hobbes thought it, it had to happen. Um, uh, uh, and so that becomes very challenging and it takes various conditions in place um, uh, for that to happen. Some of those conditions are arguably um, the conditions that are familiar to um, uh, people who are committed to liberalism. So free speech, um, uh, free um, uh, freedom of association, um, uh, baseline equality of political influence. Uh, these, I think, are basic conditions without which you can't have anything really like self-government because if there's somebody who is telling me what I can say, what I can contribute to, you know, the um, problem solving that needs to go on. If somebody is telling me who I can associate with and who I can't associate with legitimately, if someone is telling me that, well, you know, it's all very fine and well, but you say, but this other person's um, choice is going to always trump yours because, you know, they get, you know, a thousand votes to your one vote. If we don't have baseline liberty and equality of these sorts, um, uh, then uh, it's not truly self-government. So democracy requires these um, uh, kinds of conditions that are very strongly associated in liberalism. Um, but it um, uh, basic democracy, I think, uh, uh, treats these, at least in the first instance, as conditions rather than as values. So um, liberalism says they're values. You should want to be free. Um, you should want to be equal. These are, um, or this is a, um, in some sense, a metaphysical condition. You are free and you ought to um, express that in your life. You are equal and you should express that in the political organization. A Democrat doesn't have to be um, uh, committed to those, that sort of metaphysical story, they can simply say, well, if we don't act as if we are free um, and equal, then there's gonna be a boss. And by stipulation, we don't want a boss. Um, uh, so what I want to say is that um, uh, democracy does indeed um, overlap with some traditional um, uh, commitments of, of, of liberalism, but, but not with all of them, um, uh, and not for always the same reason. Uh, this is not meant to be a um, challenge to liberalism. It's not saying that democracy would be the better way to go, democracy without liberalism, or Ill, worse yet, illiberal democracy. We're not saying that's the better way to go. Simply that um, we should analytically keep the two separate um, and recognize that democracy can be an effective platform for a variety of kinds of regimes, some of which are strongly liberal um, and some of which uh, might not be. Right, so the um, so free speech is, for example, is almost like an initial setting for a democracy app. You know, if you, if you don't put free speech into the democracy app, then when people try and use it, it'll kind of break down. It'll get buggy. I think that's that's the idea. Um, yeah. And so, sh sh so shifting to, uh, I'll let you go in about ten minutes. We're, almost, we're gonna we're about fifteen minutes away from from the hour. 
but maybe we should shift to um, some more modern concerns because I know you've had a career of very distinguished career of thinking about Athenian democracy, but you also have, uh, you know, like any citizen, you have thought, thoughts about uh, your, the, the world that you live in as well. Yeah. So um, let's just take it back to, to Thucydides' description of the assembly when the Athenians launched uh, this, mm -hmm. what turned out to be a disastrous expedition to Sicily. So as I was trying to say, I mean, this follows your reading. It looks like he's describing a kind of cascade where, you know, one person says this is a good idea and the ball starts rolling. And, and after that point, it's really hard to, to sort of stop it rolling. And it, it seems to me that, that nowadays we can see this kind of thing happening in, in real time just by opening Twitter or some equivalent uh, social media. And, you know, some of them seem to be positive cascades. And when it first started, everybody said, this is great. You can go on and say, I'm raising money for Alzheimer's research or whatever it is. And people will get on board. That's great. Social causes. And then, it, you know, it started to get a bit dark. And uh, I don't want to exaggerate. There probably still are positive things happening. But, you know, a lot of people have seen that there are also these mobbings. And, yeah. and, uh, and it's happening on both sides. You know, I guess the fringes on the far left mm -hmm. and, the, and the far right. Um, and, you know, I think some people um, have a more sort of traditional uh, outlook. They've looked at this and said, well, look, this is what you get with democracy. All these people online and they just go crazy. So is Thucydides' critique vindicated in the modern world? Right. So uh, I think that if the Athenian uh, assembly uh, very um, uh, ordinarily acted the way that Thucydides points out that they acted or leads us to believe they acted in the uh, uh, debate that led to the um, uh, expedition to Sicily, it's very hard to see how Athens would have lasted for more than 20 minutes um, to go back to the early point. So I think that one of the things that we should be uh, recognizing is that Thucydides, as a critic of democracy, um, uh, at least as I imagine him as being um, not an enemy of democracy, not someone who says, you know, I just hate it, I want to destroy it, I uh, despise it. It's not, it's not pseudo xenophon it's not the old oligarch. Um, uh, but, uh, but I think he's a profound critic of it. Um, I, I does pick and choose. Um, and he gives us examples of how democracy indeed can go wrong, how a cas an emotional cascade can lead to uh, the uh, uh, a consensus, or at least a pseudo consensus, since objectors, he tells us, were simply shut up or were afraid to speak. Um, uh, uh, how how this can, uh, in fact, um, uh, take place and with deleterious um, uh, uh, deleterious effects. Um, so, a couple of things to say about this. A, it can't always have been the way even in the fifth century that it worked because Athens simply, I think, couldn't have become an effective polis, run a big empire, um, fought a war for 27 years um, had they been acting that way every time. Um, it would only be accidental that they ever aligned, you know, fell upon a, a, a policy that was more effective than less. Um, uh, but furthermore, uh, the Athenians clearly did learn from mistakes, um, uh, sort of, as it were, structural errors um, that were there in the um, earlier form of democracy, and that in the later years of the Peloponnesian War and then after the um, uh, loss in the war, they did reorganize um, uh, certain parts of their institutional system in order to try to address this danger of, um, uh, as it were, speakers who can really excite the demos in a way that was unwholesome. Uh, and that's, uh, in the end, uh, lead to these kind of um, emotional cascades um, and, and bad outcomes. So they do, uh, and we could you know, run through some of these, but they Bottom line is the Athenians make more of a distinction between fundamental rules, um, they might call constitutional rules, and then the day-to-day -day policy that is set by the um, assembly. Uh, and they require that the policy is set by the assembly um, is um, in accordance with the basic rules that are meant to 
as it were, instantiate the uh, fundamental values, um, commitments of the, of the demos over time uh, in a non-excited state, yeah, as it were. And so they make it easier um, uh, to challenge um, a speaker um, who is pushing towards a result that looks likely to be um, problematic and do that in um, a, a legal way. Uh, uh, and they begin to really press on this idea, and this may be partly in response to um, uh, issues raised by critics of the democracy, they push on this idea of what is really the character or the virtue um, of a good citizen. And a good citizen is, get this quite a lot in the um, orators, uh, is um, in some ways moderate, uh, moderate, the good citizen moderates um, the tendency um, to go for just what you want at a given moment, um, that the good citizen recognizes that there is a common good, um, there is a good that is common to the community um, that has to take preference over some short-term desires of the individual um, and that the good citizen listens in good faith to his fellow citizens, um, um, treats them in, this is Aristotle's language now, um, as civic friends rather than civic enemies. Uh, civic friends doesn't mean you're all in love with each other and all chummy and you all want to go out with a beer after the assembly and everybody loves everybody. It's not that kind of friendship, um, uh, but it's a kind of friendship that recognizes that um, I'm engaged in a ongoing relationship with my fellow citizens um, uh, that is to some extent transactional, um, but is also um, aimed at setting and sustaining the baseline uh, conditions of our continued conjoint flourishing. Um, and so I think that notion that we, we the citizens needed, we the Athenian citizens needed to both tweak the institutions in order to um, uh, lower incentives by um, uh, ambitious elites to get everybody running in the same direction, um, uh, even if it maybe isn't a very good direction. Um, and we needed to um, emphasize uh, the basic virtues um, of the citizen, or at least this basic core virtue of a kind of moderation um, uh, in respect to um, uh, individual or um, subgroup preferences. All right, so last question, because I know you have an important uh, football game to get to. Just very quickly, um, I can get your view on this. Uh, I know John Haidt, who's a, who's a pretty level-headed guy, has said he's, he's started to worry about the health of, of democracy. Mm. Um, is that something that seriously worries you? I mean, you've spent your life looking at the history of democracy. It, it, are we going to come apart at the seams? It sometimes seems, especially in the States, things are going a bit wild, or are we going to be all right? Yeah, I wish I had a neat answer to that. Yeah, uh, no, it's fine, James. I've thought it through. We're going to be all right. <laughs> but, uh, if I could say that with if I could say that with assurance, I would be a very uh, uh, much easier in my mind than I than I am. Uh, uh, I think it really does. Uh, I think uh, you know, going back to what I was just saying about the Athenians, it really I think does depend on the question of whether um, uh, we, you know, a given democratic society um, can recognize that there are institutional problems that need to be um, corrected through, you know, uh, institutional fixes and um, uh, do the work to do that. Uh, and perhaps even more challenging um, uh, that we can uh, recognize that the impulse um, to uh, feed our own strongest um, uh, partisan preferences and desires and emotions, which you know, clearly um, there's lots of ways in which that happens through social media and other ways. Um, uh, if we don't find a way to, as it were, re-embrace some kind of conception of the virtue of the citizen as being moderate instead of the virtue of the citizen as being as extreme as possible, then I think we are in trouble. 
Now, you know, is that something that's going to happen or not? Um, I like to think that democracy can be self-correcting um, when the pendulum swings really far in one direction. Um, I think that uh, the collective wisdom of the community can assert itself and say, that's that's wrong, um, but that those who want to take us there are wrong, and that the um, strong majority will is to move back towards something like a, a commitment to moderation. I don't know that that's going to happen, um, but I at least am willing to be optimistic enough to say that if we recognize that's what's needed, um, and if uh, enough people are willing to say that is what's needed and we're going to push towards that, um, uh, and we're not simply going to fight fire with more fire um, and extremism with more extremism, um, then I think then, then there is hope. Great. I know you started, it's called the Stanford Civics Initiative, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, Stanford Civics Initiative meant to basically say um, uh, it is possible to have in a classroom, in a university, um, a strongly contrasting views to debate um, uh, really important and deep questions of value by people who do not agree on value questions and to do so respectfully um, and in a uh, spirit of, you know, Aristotelian civic friendship rather than enmity and um, a desire for victory and defeat of enemies. So that's the goal. And uh, I simply hope that um, other people will start similar kinds of initiatives um, that aim at not eliminating um, difference of opinion and belief because the, every democracy depends on uh, uh, a genuine range of opinion and belief, but rather um, exchange of ideas um, that is aimed at the um, achievement of something that we can, wherever we are on the political spectrum, recognize as um, uh, a common interest in continuing on um, in a community that is reasonably secure, reasonably prosperous, um, and doesn't have some boss um, uh, with a boot on our neck. Right. And I, I mean, this is why I've joined Heterodox Academy, too, which has similar aims. So I was going to say we live in hope, but actually, you know, there are concrete things that we can we can do. So thanks very much, Josh, for coming on and for that uh, wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, James. Always a joy talking with you uh, and look forward to the next time we talk either um, in this sort of forum or, or uh, in one on one uh, privately.